This is episode 68 of The Daily Buddhism, recorded April 13th, 2014. My name is Brian Schell, and I'm your host for the show. You can find the text as well as all links mentioned in this program and all past episodes on the website at dailybuddhism.com. Uh, don't forget to sign up for the email newsletter on dailybuddhism.com. It's up in the upper right-hand corner. Just put in your email address. Click uh, Validate on the confirmation mail, and you'll be updated whenever anything new comes on the site. If you enjoy the podcast and the website and everything else, don't forget to pick up the book, The 5-Minute Buddhist, and the much newer sequel, The 5-Minute Buddhist Meditates, are now available on Amazon, Nook, iTunes, Kobo, and in paperback. Pick it up anywhere that sells books. If your library doesn't have it, request it. Uh, if you've got the book already, leave a review on the site where you purchased it. Thanks a lot. Now let's get on with this week's show. First, first article is a reader question. Uh, GLBT people and Buddhism, are they compatible? And a reader writes in, I'm just starting a new interest in Buddhism, but I'm gay and I read that the Dalai Lama thinks homosexuality is wrong for Buddhists. How should I handle that? And my response. I did a post on this back in 2008, and most of what I said then is still true. As far as I know, the Dalai Lama has not changed his tune on gay folks. That being said, since I wrote that in 2008, LGBT people have made a great progress both politically and socially. The most obvious sign of this is the growing acceptance of same-sex marriages, with more states allowing it all the time. Keep in mind that Buddhism is heavily dependent on local customs. I hesitate to put this too simply, but right and wrong are often relative to the culture in question. What's morally acceptable in one place may not be morally acceptable elsewhere. The Dalai Lama is from Tibet. He used to be the king of Tibet. If anyone gets to say what is or isn't proper in Tibet, it's him. American culture, on the other hand, is not Tibetan culture. I believe the Dalai Lama wants to reduce the level of suffering of his people, and he believes that being gay causes suffering. In Tibet, that may very well be true. In America, 20 years ago, that was often true as well. Today, not so much. Going all the way back to the foundations of Buddhism, the Four Noble Truths, the goal of all of Buddhism is to end or reduce suffering. If homosexuality is considered evil and wrong by most of society, then an LGBT individual is going to have greater suffering than in a more accepting environment. This is certainly not good for the individual or society as a whole. Is it right from our point of view? No, but that may be the way their society is. Is homosexuality a suffering-free lifestyle? No, straight people can't claim that either. It is, however, becoming more and more accepted, and therefore more and more compatible with Buddhist beliefs. And I suspect we'll have some discussion in the comments section. That's what it's for. Go back to the blog, leave your post or your comment there. 
And uh, now an update. I wrote that previous article in early 2013, and not too long ago, just last month, I think, the Dalai Lama has come out saying that what people do in their bedrooms is their own business, and he won't comment on that. And this was hailed on the news media as meaning he supports same-sex couples. Now, it's my opinion that he still doesn't approve. I don't think he's changed his mind. He just wants to avoid a topic that he disagrees with. And now our koan for this week. This one is called Rionin's Clear Realization. The Buddhist nun, known as Rionin, was born in 1797. She was the granddaughter of the famous Japanese warrior Shingen. Her poetic genius and alluring beauty were such that at 17, she was serving the empress as one of the ladies of the court. Even at such a youthful age, fame awaited her. The beloved empress died suddenly, and Rionin's hopeful dreams vanished. She became acutely aware of the impermanency of life in the world. It was then that she desired to study Zen. Her relatives disagreed, however, and practically forced her into marriage, with a promise that she might be a nun after she had borne three children. Rionin assented. Before she was 25, she had accomplished this condition. Then her husband and her relatives could no longer dissuade her from her desire. She shaved her head, took the name of Rionin, which means to realize clearly, and started on her pilgrimage. She came to the city of Edo and asked Tetsugyu to accept her as a disciple. At one glance, the master rejected her because she was too beautiful. Rionin then went to another master, Hakuo. Hakuo refused her for the same reason, saying that her beauty would only make trouble. Rionin obtained a hot iron and placed it against her face. In a few moments, her beauty had vanished forever. Hakuo then accepted her as a disciple. Commemorating this occasion, Rionin wrote a poem on the back of a little mirror. In the service of my empress, I burned incense to perfume my exquisite clothes. Now as a homeless mendicant, I burned my face to enter a Zen temple. When Rionin was about to pass from this world, she wrote another poem. Sixty-six times have these eyes beheld the changing scene of autumn. I have said enough about moonlight. Ask no more. Only listen to the voice of pines and cedars when no wind stirs. Next up, we have a different topic. It's about bardo, which is essentially purgatory for Buddhists. A reader writes in, Hello, I'm 17 years old. I've been alone for these last few months, doing a lot of thinking. I'm realizing that I'm very different from all the people around me, and that after I finish my school, I would like to leave Western society and practice spirituality. I've been reading a lot from the Tibetan Book of the Dead, and a lot of writings from different authors about the stages of Bardo, which bring me to what I would like to talk about. I'm worried I will have an unpleasant journey through the afterlife, because I have killed innocent creatures in the past for no reason. I feel very remorseful of this, and would devote my life to peace to make up for it. I know that what I did is not who I am. It was wrong, and I feel terrible. It was almost a year ago, but I wish to make it right somehow. However, I have read that no matter how experienced you have become in spiritual travel, if you have unethically harmed the innocent, you'll have ne a negative afterlife experience. 
but I think that if I show brightness to all for the rest of my days and be a good loving human, my horrible actions of the past can be overcome by love and happiness. But this is all my own research. I have never had the opportunity to speak with someone who is educated with this kind of stuff. I'm the only person I know that thinks like this. Therefore, I've pushed away all my friends. So it is just me all day alone with my thoughts, and I've realized that I want to become a Buddhist. I really need to talk to someone who knows about this. And my response. It sounds like you have the right idea about harming innocence and making up for it. There's no way to know exactly how karma works, but it certainly is possible to keep working at it and improve your karmic balance. It depends heavily on the bad things that you did, but where there's life, there's always a chance to reverse things. You realize now that whatever you did was wrong, and that realization alone means a lot. No matter what you did, no matter how bad it was, working toward positive outcomes and living a life of peace will move your karmic balance in a positive direction. Can you make up for what you did? I don't know. Maybe, maybe not. You're definitely not past redemption, if that's what you're asking. Now, on to specifics. You mentioned Bardo, and I should probably explain what that is. The idea of Bardo is, as you said, a Tibetan concept. It's roughly similar to the idea of a purgatory, or middle area between two rebirths. It's an intermediate state between the two lives. Just keep in mind that this is primarily a Tibetan thing. Many Buddhists reject the idea of an afterlife entirely, just assuming that rebirth happens quickly and simply. And this is my view. The whole idea of a staging ground to punish and purify souls just seems very complex and hard to support in my opinion. Is there an intermediate stage between lives? I can't say, but it seems unlikely to me that it's anything very elaborate. And next up we have a guest post. And this one is the second guest posting by Dr. Douglas Gentile, who writes the American Buddhist blog at usbuddhist.blogspot.com. He's been training in multiple Buddhist traditions since about 1989. In his professional life, he's an award-winning researcher, author, and university professor. And his previous guest post on the Daily Buddhism was titled, What Does Meditation Do? And that's on a podcast way in the back if you want to go look for it. This one is called Ernest Hemingway and Emptiness, or Shunyata, by Douglas Gentile. In 1933, Ernest Hemingway wrote a three-page short story titled A Clean, Well-Lighted Place. It's a masterpiece of writing technique and valuable for study simply for that. But for such a short piece, it's a profound description of the human condition as it relates to the Buddhist concept of sunyata, which is often translated as emptiness or nothingness. Westerners often become acquainted with this when hearing how Buddhists talk about non-self or egolessness. This is a difficult concept, and it usually gets misinterpreted in one of at least two ways. It can sound like Buddhists think you don't actually exist, or that Buddhism is nihilistic and that there's, there's no meaning to anything. This is incorrect. Buddhism does not deny that you or anything else exists, but instead that everything exists dependently on everything else and is constantly changing. So there isn't a solid thing that is you. You are different in each new situation and with each passing moment. Furthermore, this understanding makes it clear that everything is actually much more meaningful than we usually realize. 
If we are interconnected with everything else, then our actions matter for more than just ourselves. Nonetheless, it's definitely disconcerting when you stare this truth in the face. Realizing that everything you think you are is not accurate, that there is nothing solid and unchanging, and that there's nothing about you that is really you, can be terrifying. What happens when you come face to face with nothingness? Hemingway describes three paths. I recommend reading the story right now, and there's a link on the, in the show notes to the story. There are three characters, the old man customer, a young waiter, and the old waiter. Each has a different approach to dealing with the inherent emptiness of existence. The old man says, Last week he tried to commit suicide, one waiter said. Why? He was in despair. What about? Nothing. Facing the inherent instability of existence, what Pima Chodron often calls groundlessness, the fundamental ambiguity, or sometimes the fundamental anxiety of being human, is scary. I had a student who could easily be reduced to a terrified puddle of non-functionality any time she considered the fragility of her existence. Indeed, there are whole branches of psychology, for example, terror management theory, devoted to describing this fear and our reaction to it. The old man character typifies one reaction. He despairs. He's drunk right now, he said. He's drunk every night. The old man tries to numb himself to the nothingness, and when even that doesn't work, he leaps into it trying to annihilate himself. Now the young waiter... I wish he would go home. I never get to bed before three o'clock. What kind of hour is that to go to bed? He stays up because he likes it. He's lonely. I'm not lonely. I have a wife waiting in bed for me. The young waiter exemplifies another typical response. He works harder to hold on to his selfish point of view. He clings to the perception that his way of seeing things is right and that the others are the selfish ones. I wouldn't want to be that old. An old man is a nasty thing. Not always. The old man is clean. He drinks without spilling. Even now, drunk, look at him. I don't want to look at him. I wish he would go home. He has no regard for those who must work. He refuses to look at the truth. Although the young waiter will get old like the customer, he wants instead only to rush off, distracting himself constantly and believing that his point of view is solid. When confronted with the difficulties of life, compassion and uncertainty, he rejects them and cloaks himself in confidence. No, the waiter who was in a hurry said, rising from pulling down the metal shutters. I have confidence. I am all confidence. The young waiter is a personification of avidya, or ignorance. Traditionally, this is one of the three poisons, and is taken to mean a fundamental misunderstanding of the self as separate and solid. This is the not-knowing aspect of ignorance. The young waiter also demonstrates another aspect, however, the ignoring aspect of ignorance. He clings to his perceptions and actively ignores seeing everything else. And thirdly, we have the old waiter. I am of those who like to stay late at the cafe, the older waiter said, with all those who do not want to go to bed with all those who need a light for the night. I want to go home and into bed. We are of two different kinds, the older waiter said. 
he was now dressed to go home. It's not only a question of youth and confidence, although those things are very beautiful. Each night I am reluctant to close up because there may be someone who needs the cafe. The old waiter demonstrates a more mature and wise approach. He does not deny the fear that comes with the fundamental groundlessness of existence. Indeed, he feels it deeply. What did he fear? It was not a fear or dread. It was nothing that he knew too well. It was all a nothing, and a man was a nothing too. It was only that, and light was all it needed, and a certain cleanness and order. Some lived in it and never felt it, but he knew it was all nada y pus, nada y nada y pus nada. Ar nada who art in nada, nada be thy name. This is perhaps a type of right view, seeing things as they are. There's nothing to hold on to, and there's nothing outside ourselves that can fix that. Nonetheless, shining a light on it helps. In contrast to ignoring it or masking it with the external simulation and diversion, certainly you do not want music. You want to stand before it with dignity, and when you do, you see that it is not as scary as it first seems. In fact, it has a type of orderliness to it that can be reassuring. Some of the fear comes from the words we use. We focus on words like emptiness, nothingness, and groundlessness. Instead, we could just as easily say freedom. Because we are not solid, we have much more freedom to act, react, and feel than we usually believe. He disliked bars and bodegas. A clean, well-lighted cafe was a very different thing. Now, without thinking further, he would go home to his room. He would lie in the bed, and finally, with daylight, he would go to sleep. After all, he said to himself, it's probably only insomnia. Many must have it. The old waiter still feels the anxiety. He cannot sleep in the dark, but he also recognizes that he is not alone. Many must have this fear. For me, here is the heart of the parable. The old waiter not only can accept his own anxiety, but he has compassion for all others and the ways in which they deal with it. And he is willing to stay open later at night in case there is one whom he can help. This is the bodhisattva ideal, that as we achieve enlightenment, we remain open to help others who can benefit from it. And that's all I have for you this week. The Daily Buddhism runs primarily from your donations, and it's easy to help out. Just go to dailybuddhism.com donate and click on one of the options there. You can donate as little as a dollar or as much as you want. Keep in mind that the Daily Buddhism daily email newsletter is completely free. All you need to do is go to the site and sign up. If you'd like to get caught up on the show, all the back issues are available on the website, and most of the best are also included in the book, The Five-Minute Buddhist, available from all good booksellers. Ask your local bookstore or library to order you a copy if they don't already have it on their shelves. And, very important, if you have a question on any Buddhism-related topic, Send in your questions by email at dailybuddhism at gmail.com. And I'll see you next week. Music